Good morning. Have you ever seen or heard an act of worship that burned into your memory so that you just remembered it for potentially even years afterwards? I was thinking about this, and there's just one example that comes to my mind, and it's the, it's the noodle man. So towards the end of my time at college, uh, there was this church in the city that would offer these uh, worship nights just for anyone in the, in the city, from whatever church, sorry. Trying to help you here. <laughs> and it didn't matter if you went to that church or not, it was for everybody. And so it was just a chance to come together and worship, just offer our hearts together collectively, uh, just enter in and, and receive from the Lord. And it was, I particularly enjoyed these, and some of my friends would go, and I'd go, went several times. Um, there were certain things about it that just made it more conducive, worship environment that I found. Um, there was like the lights over the pews were pretty much like right off, so there's like more darkness where I was so that you could just kind of feel free that you're not like being spotlighted if you wanted to like move a little bit more, maybe dance, maybe, um, you know, express yourself to God physically a bit more and you just like, you realize that you're not, you're not distracting anybody too much. Uh, the music was louder so that you could feel free to just belt out, the, belt out these worship songs or, or just give an offer of praise to God and you didn't worry about also disrupting other people or being self-conscious because the, the music was loud enough that you could just enter in and, and not have to think about yourself so much. Um, and one of my favorite things for me was there was this Hammond B3 organ on the corner of the stage and I'd heard at times that they actually used it with the band in worship. And so I was like super excited to witness this possibility. I'd never been able to, like I, you hear them on albums all the time, but you never, I actually never got to hear one live. I mean, now we hear them all the time, like Josh, I think he was already playing it this morning. But at that time, it was something I always wanted to hear. And so there's a hope alive, like, okay, it's there. Maybe I'll hear it today when we get to worship and it'll, be, it'll just be beautiful and gorgeous. Now there's one other person, an attendee, that, that would attend these, these gatherings. He was there every single time I was there. He was down at the front, and this is the noodle man. And so he would do, uh, or the noodle dance man. So he wasn't dancing around with pool noodles in hands or anything like that, but it's just something, as he was like authentically just entering into worship, he was obviously not caring what anybody else thought about him, because his movements looked very, very noodle-like. So it was just very burned into my memory. But there was just something about this that just, to this day, I still remember with, and I think of him with honor. Like, he doesn't think about anybody else. He's offering this sincere heart of adoration and praise to God and just like letting it out through his body in, in whatever feels right. He's not trying to impress any of us. Um, and so there's just these sincere acts of worship. Please God, because they recognize his overwhelming worthiness. He deserves way beyond everything we could possibly have or give him. And we discover in the Gospels that Jesus honors these instances when someone is able to worship God in some way while holding nothing back. So in today's passage in Mark, we're continuing on, we encounter one such instance. While it's completely unappreciated by everybody else in the room, Jesus himself defends it, this action, and says it's a truly beautiful thing. So, uh, let's look at the context here. Uh, chapter 14 of Mark, we'll start here on the first couple of verses. Now the Passover and the festival, the unleavened bread, were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people might riot, or may riot. 
So we're today on uh, Tuesday. This is after Palm Sunday. If you can think, we've been working our way through Mark, and we did Palm Sunday like months ago. Two days have passed. <laughs> we've been working, a lot of things have happened. But in those two days, the tension between the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law and Jesus have escalated to such a level that they've already earlier, before even our previous passages, they've already decided that we need to kill this guy. Jesus needs to die. They've already tried to trap him earlier today, Tuesday, um, in the temple. Uh, they try giving him these difficult questions, and Jesus really impresses them, and especially the crowd with his answers. So their little plot to get the crowd to turn against him as a blasphemer and stone him and kill him for them has failed. So now they've gone on and they've decided we're going to try and uh, we have to capture him ourselves, but we have to do it in secret. So we're going to have to wait until the festival is over and all these people that have gathered in Jerusalem have gone home. And so uh, today, uh, so now we're, um, we're in, so Jesus has been coming in from Bethany every day. Uh, he, they arrived the week before, Friday, Saturday. And he's been walking the three kilometers into town every day to just the eastern wall of the city. That's where the temple is. He just has to go over the Mount of Olives to get there and back home to Bethany each day. Mount of Olives would be uh, about the size of Saskatoon Island, uh, not Island, Saskatoon Mountain. And the distance he's traveling is probably like going from the reservoir at Muscosipi through the trails to like Thrill Hill. So it's not a long distance, but he has to go over that little mountain each day. And so now they're back at Bethany that evening at Simon the leper's house. So let's pick up in verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Okay, so I had, in the process of studying this passage, preparing, I like absolutely was like so intrigued, what does this nard smell like? I'm like looking it up on the internet and I was like, oh man, this is like a few hundred dollars just to get like a little bottle. So like it's much cheaper than it was back then. Like it wasn't gonna cost me a year of my wages, but I was able to get like a few drops of it for like very cheap. So I mean, it, it did sacrifice a little bit of my, what my wife thought of me because she was like, why is there like essential oils arriving at our house? And I was like, she's like, Has he got, is Matt gone crazy? What's going on here? And so, but I was able to get it, and I was able to smell it. So this is uh, the term for this. So this is, the reason why it's so special is because it only can come from the Himalayas. So this had to be imported, even for them, from the Far East, as well as for us, but, you know, transportation's a lot easier now. So it's, uh, what it's called is Nardostachys jadamansi, probably pronouncing it wrong, perennial herb of the Himalayas and its fragrant essential oil. The plant and its oil have been used since the ancient times in traditional medicines, and the oil derived from its woody rhizomes is used as a perfume and in religious ceremonies. So, and as well, it, it's interesting, it's used for burial practices as well, like that's what it's referred to in this passage, but also, um, apparently the Romans would even like spice their wine with it. And I smell it, I was like, oh, okay, I wouldn't drink that. And it's not even necessarily like super sweet smelling, but I was like, okay, I guess maybe it adds this interesting flavor. So anyway, if anybody's interested in smelling it, you're welcome to, to have a whiff of this and you know, dab someone behind your ear if you want. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a weird smell, and it's not what I would expect, but I'm, it was worth it, you know? Worth every $16 of, it, <laughs> of the five drops I got. <laughs> 
Um, so, but at this time, this was like literally the most efficient way that I can think of, and probably even what they could think of, of how to like just dump or spend a whole ton of money, like an exorbitant amount of money, over a year's wages worth of money. So like today's equivalent, like over $60,000 or at one, in one moment, in a way that you could just like not get it back. So I was trying to think of equivalent things that we could do today, and I was like, okay, this is like a long, there's, I don't want to insult anybody because there's a lot of ways that we, <laughs> that we could spend a lot of, like waste a lot of money nowadays, but, but at that time, this is a very efficient way to just dump a lot of money. And she did it. She did this to anoint Jesus. She came, broke it, dumped it over his head so it could not be used again. And the, and the aroma would have just like smil, uh, filled that room. And people would have like definitely experienced this like smell, uh, which is, it's, I shouldn't say, it's not, it's not a, a bad smell. Like it's a nice smell. It's just not, I don't know. It's not, maybe not what you'd expect. <laughs> and, uh, but what she does is she anoints Jesus. And now for us, they would have, this would have been uh, significant for them because, and, and it happens several times that people are anointing Jesus. And he's also, every time they talk about him, like, are, is he the Messiah? Messiah literally means in Hebrew, anointed. And then even uh, the term Christ is from the Greek word Christos, which is, also means anointed, like he's the anointed one. So it's significant, she's recognizing this. But also, if she didn't, under, she's also, there's something symbolic happening, which we'll touch on a little bit later, something prophetic that happens that she probably didn't intend. But what she did intend was to have this overwhelming sacrificial pouring out of worship and adoration to Jesus. And that is not mistaken for anything else by Jesus. So she's literally holding nothing back. It wouldn't have been easy for her to get this. I don't know if she was saving this perfume or this oil for some other purpose, or if she went out exclusively and bought it that day and somehow figured out how to get like, sell a whole bunch of possessions to get all this money and transport to some place to buy this oil and then somehow securely get this oil to figure out where Jesus is that night. Even the chief priests and the, and the, and the teachers of the law, they couldn't find you. They didn't know where he was. They needed help to find him. But she found him, got into the place, broke it and, and dumped it on his head. The other people in the room obviously were very angry, upset, annoyed, and I wonder for myself, would I be the same? Like, this is actually, and they point out, like, it's, they have these noble reasons, like, well, is this really good stewardship? Is this how, is this the, be, the best way to spend $60,000 or a year's wages, and how much could it, it could feed a family for a year? Like, is that really right? And I think I get caught up in a bit of this, even I maybe will lean a bit to that side at times as well, like maybe this poverty mindset of like, we need to be as efficient as possible with the limited resources that we have and get the most out of them to do good works. And there is an appropriate balance to be had. But I think it is also important to recognize that the abundant, the abundant wealth of our God, who provides for all of our needs according to his, his riches and glory, and that he is purely worthy, worthy of everything we could possibly offer him. But, like these people, what is our reaction to acts of worship that offend our sensibilities? Like, can you think of a time when someone else's sincere act of, off or act of offering worship to God offended you? 
or was it too distracting for you? Do you have critiques of what you would have done differently, even though it was somebody else's offering of worship? Like, did I, did I in my mind, think for that guy that was doing the noodle dance, well, maybe if you moved a little bit more stiffly or something, you know, it would be, it would be a better offering of dance to the Lord or <laughs> something like that. Did, did somebody else's offering seem like a waste of resources? Was it too flamboyant or extravagant? Were you tempted to criticize or ridicule? The corporate worship setting, which we find ourselves in today and every week, is a special context. It's, it's unique. We get to have people be all part of one body, unified in love, with many parts, many different gifts, many different abilities that we bring together as a corporate act of worship to the Lord. And we get to see spiritual gifts being exercised together while simultaneously uh, lifting God up and glorifying him together. All while trying to be obedient to what God is saying to us. But in the corporate context of worship, it is also, uh, we're bound to be distracted or critical of someone else's contribution to the collective offering of worship. If we let ourselves, or if we allow or give the enemy a chance. Satan sincerely hates unified worship. It absolutely repulses him and defeats him. And he'll try to hinder it in any way he possibly can. So your heart all of our hearts and our minds are battlegrounds every single time that we come together to worship. And I'm not just talking about singing. Like singing has a special place and we are instructed to, to lift our voices in praise to God many times throughout scripture. But we also come and we offer offerings in all sorts of ways when we gather together. And I think for example of basically everybody that serves. I'm thinking of the people that I work, the volunteers that I work um, more closely with our worship and our tech volunteers on worship teams and tech teams, where they bring their abilities uh, and their skills and they try to and incorporate that with their spiritual gifts and try to explore that within the, their job that they're providing a service for while trying to facilitate the worship of everybody else and make your experience as unified and um, as, and good experience helping you to hopefully be able to connect with Jesus and enter in and glorify him together as we offer our corporate worship together to him. But even in these settings of these, seeing these beautiful acts being done and people that are serving in all, in all capacities, like there are people serving right there this morning, that they want to facilitate your worship. They want to help make your experience of glorifying God even better. They want to see it enhanced. And, but even in these, this beautiful situation, there's still the opportunity to be critical of each other's offerings. We should be warned, though, to be careful. This could lead us down a very destructive path. Now, in Mark's gospel here, Judas is not actually singled out in this instance. Of being, he is singled out in his actions right after, but in this instance, he's not singled out as the, person that, the main person complaining. In John's gospel, there is a similar story, which happens at uh, Lazarus' house, where Mary dumps the same kind of oil on Jesus' feet, and, and Judas explicitly criticizes. But regardless, we know that he's upset, and 
particularly because he was skimming off the top and this money, he's like, oh, that's a lot of money that was just wasted. Like, I could have got a lot of money out of that personally because I'm stealing money as well, but, but also because of the poor, right? So it says in verse 10, we're going to jump ahead. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So we are led to believe that this action was the nail in the coffin of him finally committing to betray Jesus. Was he so offended by someone's extravagant act of worship that it would finally turn him completely against Jesus? It would be worthwhile for us to ask God if he would like to bring something to mind for us. If we have any critical attitudes towards other people's worship. If we can identify the situations where we may be most tempted to be critical of others' worship, we can be more aware of when the situations arise and be able to consciously ignore or resist the enemy's attempts to sow disunity amongst us. So we're going to take a chance just right now. Let's listen to Jesus and ask him, what are the situations where I'm most susceptible to being critical of other people's offerings? Hopefully you can think of something, and maybe God will continue to bring something to mind in the coming week as well. So in verse 6, Jesus weighs in. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But, if you, will not, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my body for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus defends this woman here, and her act of worship is completely validated by the Son of God himself. And he calls it a beautiful thing. So she's done a right thing by doing this extravagant act of worship. And it was not a waste. And it was divinely appropriate, as well as being prophetic. He points out that her, her act will be remembered for forever, everywhere the gospel is preached. So anytime someone talks about the saving uh, grace of Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, and what it means for us, basically we have salvation, we also hear about this lady that did this thing. So this is a huge deal. The woman's act is honored to the absolute highest degree by God himself. And it's worth noting that scripture also repeats this pattern. When someone offers an act of sincere worship that starts to recognize the worthiness and glory of God and who God really is, God honors and validates that person. It happened even a couple of weeks ago um, in the passage that Andrew shared about the, the widow who shared those, who gave those last two coins that she had, everything that she had to live on. 
And it really struck me uh, when he was talking about it because he points out it was two coins. She could have given half of everything she had to live on, and that would have been like, would have blown my mind. But she still wanted to give both and hold nothing back. Just an overwhelming declaration of adoration to God and saying, I don't want to hold, I don't want to hold on to anything. I want to give you everything. You are so worthy of everything I could possibly give you and more. So we have hearts of gratitude for the extravagant acts of love that Jesus poured out for us. He poured out his actual life and died on the cross, died a brutal and painful death so that we can have eternal life. This is the not-so-hidden subtext of this, of this whole passage. Today, everybody, we recognize that every character in this, in this story is working towards the death of Jesus. Now, the woman was maybe, un, she didn't realize it in her offering, but even Jesus points out, this was done to anoint me for my burial. Jesus is working towards the cross. He knows this is where he's going. He keeps talking about his death. The chief priests and the, and the elders, they were actively looking for a way to kill him. Now, in their, for their mind, in their minds, they weren't doing it for the purpose of thinking that this was going to provide eternal life and salvation for the world. They were thinking that they're stamping out heresy. But they were also working towards what God had ordained to happen. And even Judas, in his act of betrayal, where he decides he's going to betray Jesus to, the, to these men, he's actively working towards Jesus' death, which provides salvation for all of us. Uh, in Exodus, Joseph, talking to his brothers at the end of his life, they're apologizing to him for basically beating him up, selling him into slavery. He gets sent off into Egypt. He's like, okay, that's a pretty big deal to apologize for. <laughs> but Joseph's response to them is very similar to this situation. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So we are so grateful that our lives are saved by his sacrifice. This act alone is worthy of all of our worship for all of eternity. But still, we can think of so many more reasons to worship him. A primary reason to worship God is that it is the chief end of man. It is our very purpose for existence. It's what we were created for. Isaiah says, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. We were meant to worship God and enjoy him forever. Because we were created with the purpose of worshiping God, with our whole being, with every breath and everything we do, we actually find satisfaction and meaning within worship. It changes us. And we often find pleasure in glorifying God. And God intended us to be able to enjoy it and to enjoy worshiping him. We were meant to enjoy him in this way. Because of this, these amazing experiences that we sometimes have, we can actually sometimes get confused. We can start to think that the purpose of our worship is for us to enjoy it. And it's the easiest mistake to make because it can be very satisfying and very enjoy, enjoy, enjoyable because we are fulfilling our very purpose for existence. So of course it can be satisfying and enjoyable. But it's a mistake to think that the purpose is for us to enjoy it or for us to have our preferences. That is not the purpose. It's nice when it works out, but that's not why we worship. 
He is glorified by our sincere adoration, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So the fact that I never got to hear that Hammond B3 organ played in that worship team should not matter. It doesn't affect my willingness to submit to his desires, not my own. The question is, will I be obedient to him in every aspect of my life? He is so worthy of honor and glory. Jesus is truly worthy of everything we'd possibly give him. Any extravagance that we can muster is beyond the glory, or is never beyond the glory that he deserves. So this morning, it would only be fair to provide you with the opportunity to freely express yourself in worship in a way that listens to what maybe Jesus is inviting you into. I don't want to put, I'm not putting any pressure on you. I'm, as an introvert, I am very sensitive and I have a lot of red flags when people try to pressure me or manipulate me into things. I was like, ah, okay, I only, I'm over, I've already spent my, my introvert, all my like, people uh, interaction time, energy level, and like, I'm depleted. So it's like, I, at this point in the service, I would probably be like, okay, well, so I'm looking at, like, well, I gotta go out that door. I can go wait in my car and kind of charge up, and then if hopefully nobody looks at me, because then I, even that like, facial expression of like, oh, hey, is like, oh, yeah, no, I'm already, already down. It's like, I enjoy interacting with people, and there's a few other introverts in here, I'm sure. We enjoy the process, but we pay for it. Like, I know a lot of you are going to be completely drained, maybe not a lot of you, but a few of you will be completely drained this afternoon, it's like you don't want to talk to anybody else for the rest of the day. But you enjoy the process. We, liked, we, like, we come here and we sometimes we're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna like to not interact with anybody on Saturday because I want to come to church and I want to like, be fully present and I want to enjoy the presence of other people and worship God with them. So I'll maybe like stay home on Saturday. And I'll plan like I'm not going to do anything Sunday night either. Like hopefully nobody asks me to do anything Sunday night. Sorry, that's a bit of a tangent. But... <laughs> Sorry, I went off on myself here. Okay, so the point is, is that I am very sensitive to this. I am not trying to manipulate you. This is an invitation for you to ask Jesus, what is he inviting you into? He is the gentle one that wants to invite you into something that is very fulfilling for, that is fulfilling for you, but that glorifies him when you are able to be obedient to him. So, what are we going to do? We're gonna, we still have our worship time. And so in this time... Um, we have our full set, but before that, before we enter in, we're, gonna ha- we're just going to take a minute, and we're going to listen to Jesus and say, what are you inviting me into this morning? And maybe it's something that you've always desired to do. Maybe that God's been putting on your heart, but you just haven't taken that step. Well, li- listen, and maybe God asks you to do that. Maybe it's something like, as simple as, maybe you don't normally sing out loud to the songs. Maybe you feel self-conscious about your voice, or you just don't like music, or, or this music, or whatever. And maybe God's just saying, you know what, I'll give you, why don't you, I'll invite you into the boldness of just singing along. Maybe it's um, a physical posture to reflect uh, what God is doing in your heart. Maybe you'll feel free to step into raising your hands or dancing or, or kneeling or something like that. Now, don't go by my suggestions. Go with what Jesus is saying. I don't, I don't need anything from you. <laughs> but maybe you need something from Jesus. Um, also, recognize that maybe there's something that God, an act of obedience that God is calling you to as well that is beyond the scope of what you can act out um, in the corporate worship setting. Like it's not, gonna, it's not something you can do here with us. 
Maybe it's something to do with somebody else, somewhere else, where God is. But I actually encourage you, as you listen, you still have to take that step of obedience. And you can still offer it with us in corporate worship. That's why we have these baskets here, is that maybe God's asking you to do something, and you just can write down. There's, we have comment cards. In this case, they're not going to be for comments. They're going to be for you to be, make a commitment of like, oh, I, God's asking me to be obedient in this way. So you could write that down on that piece of paper. And then you still get to join in the corporate worshiping and offering of something to, to the Lord by at, at the same time as us, as everybody else, and we can offer into the baskets. Now, uh, Chris will provide the opportunity um, at the, probably like the last song in the set, where you could come down, you can, and you can dance down if you want, whatever the Lord's leading you to, and you can just throw it in the basket and say, like, this is my, you know, a part of my act of worship, and it's something that God is asking me to be being in. Sorry, did I explain that Okay. <laughs> As well, I mean, if you really wanted to, if God is like putting on your heart that you desire, giving you the desire to give money, you can put money in there too. That's fine. That's not what I'm asking for. That's not what the giant baskets are for. (laughs) But be obedient to God and whatever he's giving you the desire to. I would say listen to him and be obedient. Um, I think that's it. We're going to listen to Jesus right now. Jesus is worthy of everything, all of our worship, our whole hearts being poured out to him. But especially to be obedient to him. So let's listen to Jesus um, and just ask him, how can I step out in obedience to you today as my act of worship?